When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'd been on some bender doing blow and like at like 6 a.m. called my mother who was in Chicago, which is like two hours ahead. And just unloaded and had a meltdown and told her everything that I'd been, like, on this bender. And then went to sleep for, like, 24 hours. <laughs> and when I woke up, she was she banging was on my bedroom door, like, we're checking you into rehab. And I was like, what? I didn't remember any of the conversation or any of it. Yeah. Yes, drugs, addiction, scaring the wits out of your parents are hilarious. Until they're not, obviously. And don't worry, we will get to that point in the conversation. This is a chat that will traverse some ground, let me tell you, from stand-up comedy to a complex family tree full of step-parents and step-siblings, loneliness, addiction, rehab, even palliative care. I'm Michelle Laurie, and this is the Nitty Gritty Committee, conversations about the guts and the glory of life. This week, we're chatting with Camilla Cleese, daughter of comedy icon John Cleese. She speaks with the clarity and openness of someone who's done a lot of therapy. I must admit, I was expecting a sexy, spoiled, celebrity-spawned quote machine when we met, but in person, she's much softer, fragile even, is what I would say, but... I think she may disagree with that. Well, I consider myself to be pretty confident, but I also, I think especially living in Hollywood, one of the least attractive qualities that I see in people is is overconfidence or, like, the self-absorbed, full of yourself, like, yeah, you know, holier than thou. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you want to call it. I'm trying to put it in nice words. <laughs> yeah. But, uh... You know, I, I really don't like that. And I think I think especially having my dad be who he is, uh, I have to be a little bit extra careful to not be that way because there's a lot of people expecting me to be, you know, walk in and yeah. think that I'm the shit. Can I say that? Yeah, I think that a lot of people have assumptions that you're going to be a certain way. And, and I, I guess I'm a little bit cautious of, of making sure that I don't affirm that um, because... I am a kind person. Like, I, I'm confident, but in a more quiet way, and I'm humble. Like, I've worked really hard, and I think I, I should have to, just like anyone else. Um, but that's why I love stand-up, because there's no shortcut. There's no way. You can't fake it, you know? So it was the best way for me to establish myself as a separate entity, and, like, no one can say, oh, she's only being successful because her dad's John Cleese, because... You can't 
do a five minute set and become an overnight sensation because you don't have an hour of material and there's no way you could perform that. I mean, it takes a lot of hard work and, and, and talent and, you know, just perseverance. Yeah. And masochism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also the comedy community is like pretty cut and dried, isn't it? It's like if you're good, you're in. If you're not, you're not in. It's so really simple. interesting, yeah. yeah. And I feel very fortunate. Like I feel like from the get-go I had some people who believed in me and, and you know, who were well-respected and sort of took me under their wing, which has been really nice. Mm. But it, it wasn't because of my dad, which is a nice feeling. You know, it's they know that there's he can't do anything to further stand-up careers and also that's another nice thing it's the one thing in comedy he hasn't touched you know yeah he's done one-man shows but it's still different it's yeah you know like it's scripted and it's very polished and yeah it's funny it's the one thing we disagree on like if I call him to ask him for help on my stand-up I don't do it anymore um because I'll be like, well, why don't you say indeed? And I'm like, I'd never fucking say indeed. <laughs> like, have you heard me talk? I don't, <laughs> like, and, yeah. well, and he doesn't know any reference from the past 40 years, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of hilarious. Yeah. Using all these multi-syllabic words, like multi-syllabic, yeah. which I don't usually <laughs> ever use. Um, yeah, but yeah, his comedy is about that, isn't it? It's about... Oh, his precision and timing, yes. and and I'm so fortunate I've been able to learn from him and stuff. But I almost, I think my biggest issue is not sounding too yeah. written, like trying to make it sound impromptu and organic. Because yeah, like I've, I like things to be quite meticulously worded and and you know, as economical as possible as far as wording is concerned. And I still think that's good and yeah. important, but you still want it to sound like you're just that smart off the yeah, top yeah. of your head. You're just that funny. Yeah, yeah. Because like, audiences you know, don't... They, 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 they can just, tell. Yeah. They and pick up on it. Weird conceit where they kind of want to believe that you're just talking for an hour. Right. You know? But unless you're Billy Connolly, you're not just talking for an hour. No. You've put a lot of work into it. Right. And where I every mean, word goes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, what do they say? Like a year... To write an hour. I mean, that's if you're like yeah. really yeah. pushing for it. If you're really trying. And already a headliner. I mean, it, I think to get your first hour, it probably takes five years or, you know, maybe not five, but. Well, it takes, to get your first good hour. A good hour, yeah. yeah. So where are you at in stand up? Are you a headliner yet? You're in LA? No, no, no. Okay. Um, I'm a feature act. I don't know. I know they call it different things in different countries, but like an opening yeah. level act. Yeah. Uh, I'm quite happy there. It's, do you get paid? I do. That's what we um, call it. And like in Australia, right. there's kind of the unpaid spots. When you're first trying out, Open you know, spots. Yeah. yeah. And then you move to like getting an paid. Like a middle spot, I guess middle we call spots. it. And then headliners. Yeah, I mean, in LA, like no one gets paid, pretty much, mm. because it's just so oversaturated with amazing comics and everyone with TV shows who don't need the money anyway. So it's like it, the money doing stand-up in LA is obscene it's like non-existent basically wow. I mean I think the paid regulars at the comedy store which is the hardest comedy club to get past as a paid regular where all the stars are and stuff I think they make like you know 30 bucks a set or something like it's wow yeah. um, but on the flip side 
the exposure is priceless as a performer and writer. That's what's been so great about it because almost all of the work that I book as a writer or actor is because someone sees me doing stand-up or a connection through stand-up. Mm. So, so how do you make a living? Um, writing. <laughs> writing and acting and, you know, those other jobs, plus going on the road. Like, their college gigs pay very well. Um, like extraordinarily well compared to right. you know LA or something and all you have to do is drive a few hours out and you can start making more money it's just the oversaturation here there's just way too many comics and not enough clubs so it's they don't have to pay yeah the demand isn't there yeah know? so what are you writing so, for what do you um I've written on a lot of stuff with my dad a lot of independent projects uh unfortunately the past few years I've spent a lot of time because my mom was ill uh, I was in Chicago which Chicago has a great stand-up scene so I was able to do that and they pay better there too oh, great. Um, but I couldn't really work on other projects because I was at the hospital with my mom most of the time mm. during the day um, which of course I'm I'm very grateful I was able to be there for it but uh, it kind of held my career up um, and I mean for the best reason yeah you know like I wouldn't have had it any other way but has it changed your comedy your, your mum dying um yeah I mean I think last year I felt like although I did stand up almost every night I was going from the hospital to a comedy club which is people are like you're insane how can you do that and I was like well how could I not do that because if otherwise it would have been the most depressing I would have gone home and sat there and thrown a pity party, you know, yeah. it was like, so I'd be sort of almost in tears and then have to get on stage, and it made me a much stronger comic. I didn't write very much funny stuff because I was in such a dark place mm. that I think most of the stuff that I wrote was just too dark for other people, or like it was too recent, but stuff is coming out now that I think is funnier. Like I always say, whatever doesn't kill you makes you funnier, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know? And stronger, I hope, um, in retrospect. But it and just takes a little time. The discipline of getting on stage and being funny when you don't feel funny oh. is priceless because that's going to happen for the rest of your life for various reasons. Learning to turn it on when you have yeah. to and and still be vulnerable even though you're putting a wall up. to like It's a very complicated... Because I think you do have to keep some vulnerability to connect with the audience. But like you have to put some level of wall up to deal with everything else going on in your life it's a very interesting balance but that's part of what I love about stand-up is I think the psychology of it is fascinating you know it's like every audience is different and every room is different and people are gonna be offended by different things and yeah yeah (laughs) and the size of the room and who goes on before you like there's just so many external variables that can affect how it goes mm. and your stand-up can be anything mm. you know it can be you're, you're inventing it so it, it can oh, be yeah. dark it can be light it can be anything I know sometimes I wish do you ever just wish someone said like write about this yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll sit there and be like what should I write about yeah and I'll just spend hours like well, should I write about this or this or this? Or, you know. Yeah, and then, but then sometimes you have a conversation with someone and you realise, oh, that's great. Yeah. You know? Like, mm-hmm. what were we just talking about uh, over the road? 
all oh, that when, about you, <laughs> when you're describing a person but trying to be politically correct yeah. that end up making it really awkward. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you could describe him as the guy with the afro because you don't want to say the black guy. Uh, yeah. You know, and as you said, this is great stand-up. And I thought, oh, you're right, it is. Sometimes... Yeah. You just in the in a moment you recognise it. I feel like sometimes you get in a zone where you see it everywhere. Do you? Yeah. 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 I've been on a good creative streak lately, which is good because I felt like for a month I was like I'm not funny anymore, and I started panicking and you know having a bit of a meltdown. Yeah. Uh, but it's you know you go through those phases, um, and it's funny because sometimes I think you get so immersed in the stand-up scene and working that if you don't live your life and have these conversations with people, you don't have anything to write about. And that's when you start, like the harder I work sometimes is when I stop being creative because I just, I'm like, what am I going to write about? All I've done is sit around at a comedy club and write, like try to write. Um, I know. If you spend all your time, time with comedians, there's nothing inspiring about that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Unless you're looking for inspiration to kill yourself, (laughs) which case maybe. Um, What is the scene like given that no one's getting paid and it's so, the competition is so fierce? It's so brutal here. Um, There's not the camaraderie I've found like, there is to an extent, like once you're kind of in, when I first started it was really hard because it, Nobody likes a new comic. They're like, we don't need you. We've got enough, (laughs) you know, and especially like a girl. And they're like, it is still very much a boy's world, I'm sure you know as well as anyone. And and I would imagine when you started, it was probably a lot worse than it is now, but it's still pretty misogynistic and and could be pretty, like, you have to have a thick skin. like, it's amazing. There's a ton of female comics, like, brand new female comics every year. But then it's like if they make it past that year mark without quitting. Yeah. Um, and very few, I think, do. And not just because of the misogyny and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And it's... It's and an it's endurance brutal. event. Yeah. People give up. And I often, I look back and think the ones that I was most threatened by disappeared. Mm. Oh, yeah. So they were great. Yeah. They were really good, really talented, and everyone liked them, but they just couldn't keep going. Yeah. It's hard work. It is. It's really hard work. But it's nice because how much you put into it is how much you get out of it. You know, it's like mm. the one the one thing in the, the entertainment world, I feel like, where there is generally a payoff. It's just getting to that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, you don't have to ask anyone's permission to work. No. You know, like it keeps it, you busy. Yeah. yeah. With every other kind of of show business, you have to wait to be cast or whatever. Right. But with stand up you can work every night if you don't want to get paid, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but it keeps you active and it it definitely like uh, because I act and write as well, it it all benefits e- each other. You yeah. know, it's all symbiotic I guess. Mm. Uh, and the better I get at one thing, I think the better I get at the others. So it's, you know, I couldn't couldn't ask for more. But it it's hard. You don't have a life like a social, you know, outside of like my civilian friends, as I call them. I I don't really see them anymore, which sucks. But when I do, it's great. But you know, if you're at a comedy club every night, and I now dress like this all the time. Yeah, yeah, is, like a comedian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Like a homeless lesbian, yeah. <laughs> homeless lesbian chic, I like to call it. So, who are your old friends? What, what did you used to uh, do before this? I mean, 
I went through my party phase, like we briefly discussed earlier, and you know, I I have friends in all wakes of life, but like I just don't get a lot of time to go. Like I don't get to go to birthday parties of people I've known for years or mm. whatever because I have. And if I'm being completely honest, I'd usually rather do stand-up if I have the opportunity. So that's a great feeling. Like, I'd rather be working than going to these things. Plus, because I don't drink anymore, it's like, at a certain point, if I'm not in the mood, I really don't want to be there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I still can... I'm very fortunate, because not all people who are sober can go out to bars and be okay with it. Like... I'm more than comfortable in that environment. I mean, I'd have to be doing stand-up, I think, because yeah. uh, there's enough drugs and alcohol around that Absolutely. world, you know. So how did you get sober? Know. How many times did it take it Ooh. rehab? And- <laughs> uh, I've never learned the easy way, I'll say that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the first few times I went, to, I think I went the first time to treatment when I was, like, 19 or 20, and I wasn't really ready. It was, like... I knew at that point I had a problem. I, I was far from ready to retire, you know. Um, Can I ask an indelicate question, indelicate yeah. question before we move on? Whose money were you spending on the blow? Oh, I was a girl. It wasn't, like, really... Ah, and a beautiful girl. Thank you. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're a young girl. Like, I, I rarely had to pay for it. Yeah, um, okay. I mean... At that point, like, when I was riding horses, I was earning a little bit of money. And then when I was in school, my dad was supporting me. And, you know, and I I feel horrible for this, and I've made amends to him about this. But, like, my favorite bar, which actually my boyfriend bartended at, was called the study hall. So I, I was only allowed to use credit cards for books. But when it shows up as the study hall... That's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like go out drinking for a night my dad's like oh you're buying textbooks great you know uh but Santa Barbara living there which is where I did most of my damage it's a small town and you know I'd worked in the bar restaurant industry too like bartending and serving and everyone knows each other so it's all free like you know you tip your friends but that's it's like any drug or booze you want as a young girl there, you're going to get for free. Okay, great. Yeah. So at the time, it must have seemed like the ultimate lifestyle. It did, but, you know, there was a reason, I think, because I didn't get really into it. I, I rode horses competitively at a top level, and that was my whole life until I went to university. Um, you know, I turned professional, and, and like, that was all I did, like six and a half days a week. And then my dad was like, no, I'm not kidding. You do need to go to college. So I went to university and I tried to do both, but it was impossible. So I stopped riding. Suddenly I had all this free time and the whole idle hands are the devil workshop thing. And, you know, and I, I felt like I'd lost my identity, but I also had some stuff from when I was younger that I hadn't dealt with some kind of traumatic stuff and I think a lot of it was just like trying to forget and numb that and I I was very insecure and very uh, you know just hated myself at that point in my life and like so I just wanted to get wasted but then it's a vicious cycle because when you're getting fucked up like that every night and surrounding yourself by sketchy people and 
you put yourself in compromising situations so more bad stuff happens and then you want to party more and then more bad like it just becomes ridiculous and it it really did I mean I got you know it by the time I stopped like I said I always had to learn the hard way but like you know it takes a lot for friends or family to say we think you have a problem but like um everyone close to me in my life had sat me down at least a couple times and the police of course (laughs) at least you know yeah quite a few times uh and the last time it was like how did I go from being like a good student and a top athlete to like in jail homeless no my family didn't talk to me uh I mean, it was really pathetic. And the last time I got arrested and I just remember thinking, how the fuck have I done this again? Like, it it was like I'd said to myself I was going to stop the time before. And this is like, uh, you know, I got this, I got in trouble. I got busted with cocaine. And then I was like, I'm going to tone it down. I'm not going to do blow anymore. I'm just going to drink. But then it was, you know. I won't get arrested. I'll just I'll take taxis. I'll be careful. And um, it was actually very strange because I, looking back, I think it, I believe things happen for a reason, and I think it's a blessing in disguise because I'm now grateful that all these things happened because it got me to the place I'm at now in my life, like which is awesome. But at the time, it was so unlucky. Like I never, after I said I wouldn't drive drunk, I didn't. But one night I was staying at a friend's house and we'd gone out drinking. And uh, when I came back, I realized my car was parked in a tow zone. So I literally went to move my car down the street, just like a hundred yards. Wow. And I managed to get a DUI. Given I was moving it the wrong way down one way street, because <laughs> I was shit-faced. And I knew I shouldn't have been driving, but I'm like, I don't want my car to get towed. I have to go to work in the morning. And uh, I remember sitting in jail and just being like, I mean, <laughs> this is just... And I, I couldn't get a hold of anyone, and I had to call into my work to bail me out of jail. And I was, like, so mortified because I worked for family friends and just was... Um, but I remember sitting there and thinking, like, the despair and like I just wanted to die and I was like I need to remember every detail of this moment like the smell and everything like the color of the light and the feeling and the shaking and the like anxiety and not being able to breathe and just telling myself over and over again like remember these details and then thinking like to try and hardwire in my brain anytime I drink this is what I need to think of like this is what happens you know eventually this mm. is what happens and somehow it worked like that was the last time I drank I I went to rehab the next day and I was done I was like this isn't fun anymore it was just trying to drown everything and uh you know and I was in some pretty hefty legal trouble so it was jail or rehab and my boyfriend at the time was the district attorney which is kind of hilarious but <laughs> That's a whole other story. Um, but yeah, so that uh, I think, you know, a lot of people, everyone has a different bottom, but it was like when I knew I was ready, I was done. I was, it, I was willing to do anything. And you have to be, because it's not easy. You have to 
sort of clean house, uh, metaphorically, I guess, or, you know, really take a hard look at yourself and all of the horrible things you've done and apologize to people. And I mean, that's all what AA is. And, mm. and it's a really great way of looking at things. It's a very different, it was a very different perspective from what I'd gone through life with before. Um, but I think like really, and I think the 12 steps are great for anyone to do, even if you don't have like a drug problem, because it forces you to take a long, hard look at yourself and your um, strengths and weaknesses and, and you know, make things right with people and examine resentments and take accountability for your part in them and, um, and stop being a victim and that it's easy to do when you're drinking. It's like, oh, poor me. You know, pour me a drink, they always say. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Yeah, it's a good old AA thing. <laughs> you know, I only drank once for 10 years. Uh, there's all these, like, little jokes. But it's funny because I'll hear stand-ups do them who aren't alcoholics, and I'm like, we all, in AA, everyone knows that joke. Like, it's, you hear it all the time. You didn't make that up. Mm. I know you didn't make that up. So your parents then are seeing their baby daughter smart, beautiful, talented athlete go down this road and they've tried everything and well, they I don't know how aware that they were for I kept it pretty I was good at faking it like yeah. aside from the arrests I was queen of bullshit <laughs> and I wasn't the kind of drunk that was like falling over sloppy like probably because I was doing blow which yeah. you know sobers you up and then I'd kind of keep it even and but so when did they stop talking to you? When did your dad cut you off? That was after after I got arrested with uh, with some cocaine that wasn't even mine, actually. But again, it's like those sort of God sense. It was the one time I had cocaine that wasn't actually mine, and I hadn't actually done it. Um, but like I, I do believe that those things happen sort of to kick me in the ass because... Thank God I figured it out at 23. You know, a lot of people never do. Or mm. they, at 40, after they've done a lot more damage, you know, to other people and and to their own lives. And I was grateful that, you know, my family forgave me and they were supportive. I mean, they weren't, at first they weren't real thrilled, but shit, I didn't deserve much at that point. Um, Did your dad actually say, was there a day when your mom and dad said to you, we're not... Dealing yeah. With you until you. Well, um, after the cocaine thing, I went to this. They sent me to this treatment in Florida, which was like a really hardcore kind of like they scream at you and 6 a.m. toilet scrubbing kind of shit. Um, and I, they, when you got there, part of the deal was like you get excommunicated from your family. Like you're not allowed to speak with them because, and it is true, like there's something to it. You know, addicts are very manipulative, and and a lot of the families are very codependent. So there's, they can, you know, skew things. Well, I was there about three weeks or a month, and I thought I'd signed on for about a month, and it turned out I'd signed on for six for six months. And this place was like, it was bad. It was, um, and a lot of the reason I was drinking was to deal with, I had PTSD and a lot of trauma issues and, um, 
you know, being screamed at every day was not the right approach. Not that I was looking for a place of luxury, but like I just needed someone to like be nice to me and kind of it wasn't really helping. So I ran away thinking I'd be able to get my family to talk to me. Like I, I literally took off with laundry quarters and an expired British passport. I was in Florida and a backpack and that was it. Managed to get myself back to California. Um, and I was thinking this whole time because I've been modeling too. So I had pretty good amount of money in a bank account uh, in California, but I'd forgotten that when I started modeling, I wasn't 18, so my parents had co-signed on the account. So I'm like, all I have to do is get back to California and I'll be fine. I've got like something like 50 grand in the bank and I'll just <laughs> keep go, go about life. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was the that feeling of walking into the bank and I'd been wearing the same clothes for like a week and I was like, uh, you know, I'd like to withdraw some money, and they're like, "Oh, I'm sorry, your father came in and closed that account." And I was like, "Oh, this um, is so sad to listen to because yeah. I'm imagining that you are running away to get to them, to get to your mum and dad because right. you need someone to be kind to you. But from their perspective, she's done it again. Right? Well, she skipped out on rehab, and it was a, it was a difficult thing because. I felt like they didn't believe anything I said at that point, which was my own fault. Yeah, but it like, still hurts. But there were a lot of things that I wanted to tell them that they couldn't hear at that point. And my dad was just terrified, and I, and I totally get that. And I realize now they did the right thing because eventually, you know, I went on like another six months and I was just working a bunch of bartending and waiting tables jobs and paying my lawyers off and trying to... Mm. Um, but then I eventually checked myself back into rehab and... And that was, like, when it's kind of stuck. Um, but not talking to them was, like, oh, it was the worst. Mm. I mean, I... And I remember I was... Oh, I was waiting tables. And I hadn't seen my dad in, like, six months. And I was, you know, just a mess, like, internally. Like, I kind of turned into a zombie. And he came in for lunch with someone, I think, not knowing that I worked there. And I, like, in Santa Barbara and... I just remember like going in the bathroom and just being like, um, and just trying not to make eye contact with it. I mean, imagine the awkwardness. And he didn't see me for like, you know, the first half of the meal. He's a little oblivious, but. Oh. You didn't speak to each other that day. No, we did. We did. We did in the end, but it was the most uncomfortable. You know, I think I was just trying so hard not to lose it and mm. because I was working I think God wasn't waiting on his table mm. but uh, we sort of said hello and that was it but it was like first he's always been my rock and my best friend and like to to feel that sort of cut out and I know it wasn't easy for him like no. he was just doing this because they'd all said like the tough love like you have to stick with this and I'm sure it didn't help that my stepmother was kind of my. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ex-stepmother was... She's like a... Used to work with troubled teenagers and stuff, so... It was her area of expertise, mm. and, you know, she wasn't my biggest fan, so mm. I'm sure that didn't help, but, you know. But also, he was not operating with all the information, was he? Like, what he didn't no. know, what was it that, where did your PTSD come from? What was it that he didn't know? Oh, that's, you know, it's not really something that, like, I can talk about publicly. I just... Sure. Um, there were a couple different things, but he knows now, and, you know, he was very... Once I checked myself into rehab the last time, he was very supportive and came out and did the family program with me, which really meant a lot, and we repaired our relationship. You know, it t- took a lot of time. Is that, that when that he was, found out everything that he needed yeah. to know to under, really understand what was happening with you? Yeah, I think so. Um, because he's, you know, he works so hard, like... I think it was still. impossible. Still, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the marriage and divorce thing has not <laughs> has not enabled him to slow his career to a leisurely pace, unfortunately. Which yeah. I so hope that you know he can do soon because I hate to see him working this hard at this age. But um, you know, it. Uh, he was just gone all the time. So how could he really know? And I was able, you know, when I'd see him for a few days here or there, I could hold it together and. Oh, everything's great, you know. Yeah. Uh, and my mom, there was another set of issues, and, you know, she was a little bit oblivious, too. I mean, I, I was good at hiding stuff, but sometimes I look back and think, did they really not notice, like, what was going on sort of under the roof? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also went to boarding school, and I, you know, the horse shows, we were on the road like 35, 40 weeks a year, mm. so it was a lot of travel and mm. not a lot of supervision and a lot of kids with money, so, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Recipe for disaster, basically. Yeah. It, do you, were you lonely as a kid? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, horribly. I mean, but shit, I think most alcoholics and addicts will will say that they felt that way even if they grew up in a family with 10 kids or something. And there were usually, I had stepbrothers or stepsisters or half-sisters or half-whatever. 
in the house, but I'm the only kid from my two parents. And I was always very close to my dad. And then when we moved to the States, you know, it's hard having parents in a different country because it's like, oh, you're going to your dad's for a couple of weeks and put you on a nine-hour flight by yourself. Mm. And this is like pre-Game Boy and pre... Yeah. Pre, like, movie screens in the back of your... <laughs> like, I would lose my mind just, like, uh, at that age on an airplane for that long, so... Mm. It feels uh, like the adults were really... Um, preoccupied. Like, they had, they had really busy lives themselves, yeah. like your parents. Yeah. I mean, they were both a lot older when I was born, too. Oh, were they? And my mom was 39 and my dad was 45, I believe. Okay. So, you know, they... My sister, who who's my dad's other biological kid, is like 13 years older. You know, I don't think oh. it was the right time. And, you know, my mom and dad, and I only found this out fairly recently. I guess they got married after three months of dating, which <laughs> explains a lot. <laughs> you know, this whole time I was like, oh, it's my fault they got a divorce. Not really. I mean, I... Like, they, knowing them as adults separately, I'm like, God, how did they ever get married? Like, they're just, they're both wonderful, brilliant people, but they're so not right. Like, they're just opposite, you know? Um, But not in the way that opposites attract, like, (laughs) like, polarized, like... uh, Yeah, and it's funny, I remember my mom was like, well, I didn't want to set a bad example by telling you because I wouldn't want you to get married after three months of dating. I'm like, so you let me believe that <laughs> shortly after I was born, you guys got yeah. I mean, yeah. I say it jokingly, you know, it's yeah. like I said on, on the radio, even as a kid, I knew they weren't right together, so yeah. it wasn't like a major point of disappointment when, uh, when they separated. Did you have other people in your life? Did you have nannies and other people taking care of you much? A string of nannies... You know the British super nannies, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who uh, were you know I was always a troublemaker as a kid. I mean, never in like a malicious way. I just sort of liked to play practical jokes that used to go horribly wrong a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, horribly, horribly wrong sometimes. Um, but we, yeah, always like an agency nanny, and then there were always people in the house. You know. And housekeepers and, and stuff like that but I've always been artistic and creative and kind of a loner like I think especially moving around so much I never fit in at school and I was a foot taller than everyone and I skipped a couple grades when I was younger so I was very smart but like painfully shy and very awkward gangly and not I just didn't know how to Especially going from London, which was... I went to, like, the sister school to where Prince Harry and William went, so it was, like, very strict and very proper. And then to some artsy-fartsy co-ed school in Chicago. Wow. <laughs> it was kind of a shock. With your posh accent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember I, I said to someone one of the first days of school, I was like, could I borrow a rapper? <laughs> and um, of course, in America, that means a condo. Yep. And they're like, "You're a slut." And I'm like, "What's a, what's a slut?" You know, I don't like. <laughs> oh, you pulled uh, You know it. 
So what did you do to fit in? So you, you get to Chicago, it's happening, it's done. That's where you're living now with your mum. And how old were you? I think I was like nine or ten when we first moved, and then I'd go back for the summers for three months, so I still felt kind of more British. Uh, did you change yourself, though? Did you, did you oh, try yeah. and change as I, fast as you could? I was trying to pick up an American accent yeah. from day one. <laughs> I sounded Scottish for a while, like it was just all over the place. And then, uh, you know, just trying to... As a kid, you always, I think, want to fit in. And I was, like, weirdly good at math and... You know, play the cello, which people don't make your kid play the cello if they're awkward and lanky because, like, yeah. carrying that shit to school every day is, I mean, it does not help your personal life. No, when, it's quite a visual, yeah. Oh, oh and the worst, like, <laughs> I used to rollerblade to school, but my mom got me those rollerblades with horrible bearings, like, so that the wheels don't spin, basically. Yeah. So you're, like, walking on rollerblades with this fucking cello. And the ruffle socks and sweatpants. Like, I, my mom dressed me like a little clown. And then I had a bad riding accident and was in a neck brace for, like, three months. And, I mean, just... And, but I'd still carry the cello on my rollerblades. Like, it was, like, the most ridiculous picture looking back. Yeah. Um, and it would have been faster to walk because the rollerblades literally were so crap. I'd be like walking on them, you know, just trying to be the cool kid. Do you do stand up about that? That's so funny. I haven't, but I, I should. It's That's funny. It's a funny visual. Yeah, it's um, funny. <laughs> yeah I. But do you think that's what drugs are about too? About like fitting in suddenly there's this really cool fast crowd and it's kind of easy to fit in you just do as many drugs as everyone else oh yeah absolutely and that was it's too bad because like I switched schools we moved out to the suburbs when I began high school and I remember that summer I was like right I'm gonna reinvent myself because I'd been bullied and I was a dork and I was like I just really want to have friends and be cool but I quit playing the cello and I quit being in like math club and all of these things that I so wish I'd stuck with yeah. now because I, I just wanted to be popular. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, the first time I remember having a few drinks and I was suddenly really confident and everyone thought it was funny and cool and it was like, oh, okay, this works. And, yeah. you know, I think I was 12 or 13 and the first time someone gave me cocaine and I was like, this, might, this is like superwoman shit. Where, <laughs> what have I been missing yeah. all this my childhood, you know. So who gave you cocaine? When we hear a celebrity's kid, someone gave me cocaine, I imagine you're at the Whiskey A Go-Go and it's, you know... That was a little bit Liza later. Liza giving me cocaine. Like. <laughs> that was a little, a few years after. Uh, so were kids in the suburbs doing coke in Chicago? Oh, yeah. I mean, this was at boarding school. So boarding schools are really good for... Really? Because there's a lot of pressure, you know, there's a lot of kids with money and coming Mm. from these families, and it's sort of like the Stepford Wives on the outside, like very perfect and prim, but all the families are kind of a mess underneath, but they're keeping up appearances. And and I skipped the grade where they had drug education, so I literally didn't, like, know, I didn't know what cocaine was. Like, I didn't know it was bad, I didn't know it was really bad for you, I just, like, knew it was sort of dangerous and cool and um yeah because I lived in a dorm as it was I was like pretty young for my grade like maybe two years year or two years uh 
but it was a small private school, so there were kids in my dorm who were up to 18 years old. Wow. Um, and we were all friends, so I was hanging out with people much older. And my, my best friend had an older brother who just graduated high school and was still living in town, and they were really close, so we hung out with him and all his friends, and it was like, she was three years older than me. Wow. But because I was tall, I think people always assumed I was older and treated me as such. So which, you're hanging out with guys five years older than yeah. you? Yeah. Wow. And I never would, you know, I tried to keep it private how old I was because I wanted to be cool mm. like everyone else, you know. And I looked, I mean, I've looked 30 since I was 12. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And when I go back to England, same thing, because, you know, there they don't card you if you can see over the bar, or at least they didn't used to, you yeah. know. Yeah. But there, in England, was being John Cleese's daughter a big deal? And did that get you into the Groucho Club and get you into those... Not at that age, because I, you know, I kind of kept myself separate from it. I always gravitated towards a family that had a lot of kids, but that was kind of normal. Um, you know, because I really liked that. And then I would sort of move in with them and not see my family. Like I would. Did you? Well, Dad would be gone working a lot, and you know, so if he was off on a movie or shooting or whatever, I'd just be at my best friend's house all the time. Like, and they were great. I mean, I'm so glad that I had. That Again, escape. that feels like such a cliche that I can't believe it's true. You know, yeah. that a poor little rich girl. You yeah. Know, your dad is a beloved superstar, and mm-hmm. you're seeking a normal family to move in with. Just, yeah, just, like, people who are around and love each other and there's no drama. Like, it, it's very real and it wasn't... And I'm glad, you know, and, and living with my mother, too. Like, she wasn't extravagant. Like, I never had the whole, like, had credit cards to go out shopping and stuff. Like, mm. that always astounded me, even when I saw it with my friends in the horseshoe world. Like, I had friends who, you know, at 16 got, like, Bentleys to drive and... Because that's like a whole nother level of money in this country. It's it's bananas. Uh, but like I was spoiled in in the fact I was very lucky, and you know, riding horses is obviously not a cheap hobby. But I think that saved me up to a point because um, it wasn't until I stopped that really that I got in in so much trouble. But it, even when I was doing that, it wasn't like I had credit cards to go to Gucci and like buy clothes like Mm. I lived pretty you know averagely I mean average isn't the right word you know I shopped at the Gap and like was pretty I was very comfortable and very lucky but not like bawling by yeah yeah you know Paris Hilton no No. not even close (laughs) I mean I didn't care about that you know Mm. my first car was a used Toyota, like it's not like what people would expect. I think mm. still had cliches to live up to, though. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, managed to get fucked up anyway. Yeah, well, most of us will manage that, regardless of the obstacles. Camilla Cleese, lovely, self-aware. I'm so enjoying our conversation, but I do need to tell you a little bit about what's coming up because there's some noises in the background that I hope won't be too distracting. In the moment, I found the activity around them incredibly poignant. Camilla and I were sitting in a big room on the first floor of the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel having this conversation, and we were surrounded by Christmas decorations. 
Well, just at this moment, just as we started to talk about Camilla's mum's terminal illness, some men came into the room and methodically started packing away these stunning antique Christmas decorations. I just, I found the whole spectacle really moving. Maybe I was tripping, but I did want you to know anyway what these strange noises are. Also, I should tell you a little bit at this stage about Camilla's mum. Her name was Barbara Trentham. She was an American actress and model. She was John Cleese's second wife, and they were married between 1981 and 1990. I'm Michelle Laurie, and you are right in the middle of the Nitty Gritty Committee. Thank you for downloading. Well, the first time she got sick was about eight months after I was sober. Wow. Um, and she got breast cancer and decided to go through her treatment there in Jacksonville, Wyoming, which was actually great because I needed to get out of L.A. And um, I taught skiing there for the winter and looked after her while she got chemo. And it was a really great experience and brought us a lot closer. And then she was in remission for about four or five years and doing great and then started to feel very tired one day. And um, that was, I guess like September of 2012 or no maybe a little before that uh, and I remember like I knew that she hadn't been feeling well but like I had no idea you know they always try to hide it from you to because they they think they're doing you a favor but then to get the bomb drop that she had uh, ALL which is acute acute lymphoblastic leukemia um, which is it left untreated will kill you in three weeks. And it's typically only uh, affects kids. Like, it's a very common leukemia in children. But apparently it can be a side effect from breast cancer, the treatment from the breast cancer. So, which, of course, we had no expectation of. Uh, so she went through the chemo for that. And... You know, the chemo, obviously, because it's a cancer of your immune system, basically. It's a cancer of white blood cells. So in order to kill the cancer, you have to knock out the immune system. And then she contracted all of these, like, pneumonia and all of that kind of stuff. And so she was in the hospital for three months or so then. And, you know, in and out of the ICU. And then finally was better and released. And then, uh, but for that kind of cancer... She was then declared in remission, but the only way, like, it will 100% come back if you don't do a stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant. It's a little bit different now, but... So we went ahead with that, but I don't think any of us anticipated how dangerous that was, and, you know, I think we were a little bit blindly optimistic, which is probably a good thing, because keeping our spirits up and stuff, but... uh, because again they knock out your immune system to do the transplant and then she contracted like seven different infections and viruses and you know and spent the next 10 months nine or 10 months in the hospital like you know and it was a weekly it was horrible mm. i mean it was and that's a long just, time oh yeah. for you to be there every day and things to be developing all the time there's no respite during that 10 months no. is there no because it would be like you know, she'd start to get better and she'd be back out of the ICU and and we'd be so hopeful and it was like she'd be conscious and talking and we'd be trying to get her to eat, which was like, that was like all I did for, um, for those months. But 
you know, and she was in good spirits. And I'm so grateful I got that time with her because, you know, but like just watching someone you love go through that is is just heartbreaking. Like, I mean, the you just get to the point where you're like, leave her the fuck alone. Mm. Like, stop with the tests, you know, the needles and the like the amount of pain that she had to endure was just horrifying and it, you just watch them deteriorate like you know she went from being she was like a big supermodel and suddenly she's like 80 pounds no hair her face I mean she looked like and you know one of those aliens in a movie like it just wasn't her anymore and she was so frail and and you know the skin starts falling off and like it's just it's it's so horrible to watch Mm. um and you know obviously it was sort of like you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't if she hadn't gone through the procedure there was no chance she was going to make it but and after all it was crazy like after nine months she had been declared free pretty much of all the infections she was very thin and weak but they they were like the leukemia is cured. It's gone. And, you know, so we took her home. And I mean, it was like, oh, my God, she's going to make it. Like, this is amazing. And and she was home for about three weeks. I came back to California and tried to put my life back together. And uh, I got a phone call. She, Her fever spiked. We're taking her in. They were running tests. And she was stable. She was okay for a few weeks. But they couldn't figure out what was going on. And... So I flew back there, and one day I was just sitting in her room talking to her, and like suddenly I was watching. I used to compulsively watch the, you know, there's a little screen with the blood pressure and the oxygen levels and everything. And uh, I started to just watch her heart rate go up and up, and blood pressure. And I was like, what is going on? And she seemed fine. She was talking, and then suddenly she started. And the next thing you know, there's 30 doctors in the room and intubating her, and and there didn't seem to be any reason for it. You're just like, why the fuck is this happening? And and, uh, took her down to the ICU, and they have to um, sedate you very heavily to intubate, you know, put you on the breathing machine, because otherwise you fight it. So she was basically unconscious, and they still couldn't figure out another two weeks of sitting around the ICU like didn't know what was wrong so they didn't know how to treat it and uh, and then I got a phone call from my best friend who, who'd been watching my dog and my dog had collapsed <laughs> and so like he's only going to live 24 hours so I flew back out here to spend the last day with him well then he kept living <laughs> and he was my baby I'd had him 14 years I mean he was old but like it was he'd been very healthy and suddenly had this heart problem and I knew he was a ticking time bomb and while I was back with my dog they called and said uh, the leukemia is back it's gone to her brain there's nothing else we can do and we're you know the only thing keeping her alive right now is this IV nutrition and that's also keeping the leukemia alive. So there's the only thing we can do is is just take her off and let her fade away. And you're like, how does that happen? You know? Yeah. Um, after 
nine or ten months of fighting you're like what was the point yeah like why did she go through all that and uh so i knew it was 10 days to two weeks but my dog also was like it was horrible it was like sophie's choice Mm. um and i actually wound up staying because she was unconscious and i felt like i'd been there with her through everything and i felt like i was making more of a dip a difference being there for my dog because he was still, he seemed fine. And uh, she she slipped away earlier than we expected. You know, it was like seven days or something. And then... Um, so you weren't there? No. Which part of me hates myself for, but I think she loved my dog so much too and like, because she was unconscious and she had her brother and everyone there with her. Like, it felt like the right thing to do. I'll never know, you know. But you, you spent her last conscious moments with her, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I was there for nine months. Yeah, and, and you were, so yeah. I felt like she knew how much I loved her, and, and I think it just would have been almost too traumatizing to sit there and wait in the room with her, yeah. you know, plus not being with my dog. It was a horrible, horrible year. Yeah. It, it's interesting. In the meantime, broke up with my longtime boyfriend, too, which was, like, just... Yeah. You know, when it rains, it pours, but... But like, when you talk... We're talking about um, thinking, how much does one person have to go through when you're thinking about your mum's final months? I can't help but think that about you. I just think, how much does one girl have to go through? <laughs> yeah, you're sweet, but it's, like, you know, it's life. It happens, and... And I try to just look on the bright side and be be grateful for the moments that I had with her and, and grateful for the fact that, you know, my career and, and such enabled me to be there with her because a lot of people couldn't do that, just take a year to go be with their family. And, you know, I was lucky because my mom owned an apartment that happened coincidentally to be two blocks from the hospital she was at so I could stay there and... But it was a hard, hard... Last year was horrible. Yeah, yeah. But... 2013, right? That was your... That, that was, was my... Year. <laughs> it just couldn't get any worse. But it's like... So where are you at now? Talk me through all of those God, levels. Where are we I at now? I just unloaded on you, didn't I? I feel like I got so... And I haven't told that story, I don't think, ever. Uh, but... You're easy to talk to, I Thank guess, you. which is the good thing. Like, you. it's just a very I appreciate kind, you telling uh, No, uh, it took, it's taken a while, and, uh, you know, I, but I came back and I've been doing a lot of therapy, and um, I found this really great new therapy, actually, which really changed my life, kind of, because it, it helps deal with the physical manifestations of emotional shit, which I'm very good at. Like, I get a lot of physical pain and stomach issues and stuff like that. And that really helped. But, you know, it, it's been, it's taken time. It's still hard, you know, especially in the holidays. It suck. Like, I just wish I could fast forward through. But. And also because it feels like you spent a lot of your life away from one or both of your parents. Yeah. You know, yeah. so now that your mum is actually gone, yeah. you know, um, I must feel a little untethered. Yeah, I, I hate that my dad moved back, but, you know, that to was... To London? Yeah, because when he was in Santa Barbara, it was great, and I could see him, and now, like, I barely, you know, barely see him. But I hope that 
when his work schedule eases up, I'll be able to see him more. And I think we're going to work on the Fish Called Wanda musical in the upcoming year, um, which would be great because that'll be a nice excuse to spend some time with him and, you know, and still move my career forward. Yeah. I'll just take vacation. And it was great to spend time with him in the UK this summer. And, you know, it was awesome to go to the the O2 reunion for the Python thing because yeah. I wasn't alive the first time around. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it was pretty cool because he started out at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um, and, you know, 40 or 50 years later, it was at the O2 doing his last hurrah with the Pythons the same year that I was going to the Fringe Festival, which felt kind of like a full circle. Yeah, that was your first Fringe. Yeah. First Edinburgh Fringe, yeah. Yeah. Um, Great reviews. Yeah, I was happy. I mean, I, you know, I'm always hard on myself, but I think I did what I wanted, or I got what I wanted to accomplish out of it. And uh, Mm. it was a lot of fun. Great experience. What a festival. Wow. Yeah. Met a, a lot of amazing people and a lot of fun. <laughs> is it possible that you and is I also was had an addiction problem in my late teens and early twenties, oh, wow. and have completely substituted it for workaholism <laughs> for like the last twenty I, I get years? That. Yeah, yeah. Is it possible you're doing that because yeah, I'm just, I would rather work than do anything. Me too. Yeah, but I love what I do, so yeah. it doesn't feel like a problem at this point. The good news is if like. You know, my dad, I think, is kind of a workaholic, and but I get it. Like, it's never, yeah. I've never resented him for not being there because I knew that he was providing all of these lovely things for me, and, yeah. and he was doing it for the family, and, you know, um, so, and I've always admired him and his work ethic and stuff, so it, it never, my dad was always great about that. Like, when we were together, we spent really good quality time together and played a lot of games and, and you know jigsaw puzzles and art projects like he loves games I think almost more than I do um, so we played a lot he's never beaten me at Scrabble I will publicly brag about that because his vocabulary is a hell of a lot better than mine it's very impressive yeah yeah but uh I'm glad to hear that because I imagine your dad is a sweetheart. So I was hoping he that is. we he's met you. He's a very, very kind, warm, generous, incredibly generous man. Yes, well, obviously that apple has not fallen far from the tree. That is Camilla Cleese. You can check out her stand-up on YouTube. You can keep tabs on her tweets. She is at Camilla Cleese on Twitter, which is nice and easy. And if you enjoy conversations between comedians, uh, maybe you find them completely tedious, but some people seem to enjoy them. May I recommend two of my favourite comedy podcasters, Justin Hamilton and Jen Brister? There'll be links to both of them on my webpage, michellelaurie.com, under the Camilla Cleese podcast blog. I hope that's not too confusing. There's also a link there to the website of Tenzin Choyil. He is the man behind the beautiful Tibetan music you heard throughout the podcast thank you to tim mountford and peter laurie for editing help but please know that the clunkiest edits are all mine and thank you for downloading this episode of the nitty gritty committee conversations about the guts and the glory of life please subscribe to get them all on itunes and go ahead and leave us a nice review if you feel so inclined ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 